Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 11. 2 Kings chapter 11. We left off in verse 12 last week, and we didn't get to finish it. And last week, as we looked at verse 12, we learned that young Josiah was crowned as the king of Israel, and he was crowned by Jehoiada, the high priest. And we learned that the word crown signified more than a fancy ornament that they put on his head with diamonds and all of that. In fact, man has made more of the crown than God has. When God crowns someone is to separate them. And you learn a lot about crowns if you study it throughout the Bible. But we learn that in the Old Testament that word crown came from a Hebrew word that means to separate, to consecrate. So not only was Josiah, by being crowned, separated from the people, but he was also consecrated to the Lord so he could be consecrated to the people. He's not much use to God if he doesn't consecrate himself to the Lord or if he's not consecrated to the Lord. Now there's a difference here in what happened with Josiah and what happens with some religious leaders like the hermits, the monks who go off and live in a mountain apart from all of society and believe that that's their religious duty. Well, they're not much good to the people they're trying to serve, and just as well, if their doctrine's bad, they may as well go live in a mountain and not come back. But this is how godly leadership is instituted, whether it be at the throne or in the church. First, the leader is separated from those whom he is to lead. He has to be. Everybody can't lead. So someone has to be called out from among the people to lead them. And once that person is called out, he's got to be consecrated to the Lord if it's going to be a godly leader. And only when he's consecrated to the Lord can he be truly consecrated back to the people from whom he was separated. He's separated that he may be consecrated, that he may return to the people and lead them. In the Old Testament, this principle is embodied in the ordination of the high priest. If you read Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers, you'll read quite a bit about the high priest. And when you read about the high priest, you're learning about Jesus. And we've done so when we studied those two books verse by verse, it has been a few years. So if you weren't in those studies, then it may be new to you. And if you were, we remind you of the importance of them from time to time. The high priest was called out from among them. In fact, Hebrews chapter 5 verse 1, Hebrews chapter 5 verse 1 says, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. And then in verse 4 of Hebrews 5, it says this about that high priest, And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So even though there were 12 
tribes, the children of Israel. There were millions of people in those tribes. Not one of them could stand up and say, hey, I want to be the high priest. Not only did he have to be a Levite, but he had to be a Levite from the family of Aaron, who was the first earthly high priest here in this line. And so when Hebrews tells us that the high priest was taken from among men, that means that high priest was separated from men. He wasn't separated so he could go away and never see them again. He was separated, ordained by things pertaining to God, so that he could offer sacrifices and gifts on behalf of the people from whom he was separated. The high priest was a Levite of the order of Aaron or of the line of Aaron, so he was an Israelite. And when he was called out from among the children of Israel, he was not called away from them. He was first separated from them under the Lord and then back to the people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul commended the churches of Macedonia for the way God used them to minister to the apostles. So this principle has an application to the people of the Lord as well, not just the high priest. And listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote as he told the Corinthians how wonderful the Christians were at Macedonia in those churches. In verse 5, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 5, Paul wrote, And this they did, talking about the Macedonians, not as we had hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. So these Macedonians separated themselves from the mass of people, from the mass of even the churches of that day. By giving themselves to the Lord. And then he said, and unto us by the will of God. They gave themselves to the Lord first, and then God used them to minister to the apostles. Now had these Macedonians not first given themselves to the Lord, then they could not have given themselves back to the apostles in the way that they did. For example, if those Macedonians would have said, well... You know, we're, we're cruising along just fine here at that church, and if the apostles come along, we'll put them up here in the America's Best Travel Lodge, and we'll feed them grandies, and we'll just take care of them. Well, that'd be just fine. But there was more to it than just feeding and clothing. There was that spiritual encouragement the apostles needed. You know what an apostle needed in those days? The same thing a pastor needs today, a teacher is encouragement from the people to whom he is ministering to keep doing that. We don't need trophies and accolades and all of that sort of stuff. But the very fact that somebody will come on a cold Sunday morning when it's easier to stay at home under the covers and sit under the teaching of God's Word, that's encouragement right there without you having to say a word. That's encouragement. That tells me that you wanted to be here. For those of you who've tuned in, and boy, this thing is a distraction, isn't it? Even when you're listening, it's so easy to just scroll and look at Facebook and see what other people are talking about and what's going on in the world. For you to tune in and to pay attention during this time is an encouragement. But you wouldn't do that if you hadn't first given yourself to the Lord because none of this would be important to you. 
And so that's what those Macedonian Christians did. Now, what about church leaders? The same principle applies as it did with King Josiah. The leaders of a church are members of the church, and they are separated from the congregation for a purpose, and it has to be that way. Everyone can't be the pastor, the teacher, uh, elders, so forth. But when the leaders are separated from the church, they have to be consecrated to the Lord. You're his flock, you're not our flock. I mean, we may, a pastor may say, well, my flock, my flock. Really, it's the Lord's flock, that central, over whom the pastor has been placed as an overseer. It's the Lord's flock. And when we are separated from the congregation for leadership positions in the church, God consecrates us back to his service on your behalf. We don't just leave and say, well, we're, we're pastors now. Well, you're no, what kind of pastor are you if you don't have a flock? And so to be consecrated back to your service, what that entails is us taking God's word right here and feeding it to you by preaching and teaching to you what it says, by slowing down a little bit and explaining the sense of the verses and giving some examples, telling you what the words mean, and, and so forth. On the other hand, a church leader who is not first consecrated to the Lord, he's separated from his people, but he's not first consecrated to the Lord. And when he goes back to that church, he's not anything more than a leader of a social club. That's all he is. A social club that gathers on Sunday morning for a talk for a speech, for a bunch of activities that don't involve teaching the Bible. And many church leaders in not just our country, every country in the world, have been separated from among the people, but not consecrated to the Lord, and therefore they lord over their congregations. They rule over them with whether it's an iron fist or manipulation or, or whatever it is. And they starve them to death in the process because they're not feeding them God's word. Let me tell you, that is a full-time job. If a, pers if a pastor is behind this pulpit or teaching from a lectern or wherever he is, and he is not occupied with teaching this, then he's wasting his time. And so this is a full-time job when I'm behind this pulpit, is to teach you the word. And when I'm done, you know what I need to do? Is sit down and be quiet and let someone else teach. Josiah was crowned. He was separated from the people, consecrated to the Lord. And how do we know this? Well, the next part of verse 12 will tell us. Let's look at it. We're, if you've just tuned in, we're in 2 Kings chapter 11. And verse 12, and he brought forth the king's son and put the crown upon him and gave him the testimony and they made him king and anointed him and they clapped their hands and said, God save the king. So it says that Jehoiada, the high priest, put the crown upon him and gave him the testimony. Now let's look at that word testimony. The word testimony means a witness. In fact, in the Old Testament, it's translated that way four different times 
as the word witness instead of the word testimony. But most of the time it is translated as the word testimony. If it helps you understand it, think of it as the word witness. You do no damage to the scriptures when you do that. When a witness gives his testimony in court, he's telling the court what he saw, what he heard, maybe what he did or didn't do. And when the witness tells the truth about what he saw or heard or did or didn't do, that is his testimony. The problem with man is that he sometimes lies when he is supposed to be giving testimony. And so when he lies about any of those things about which he is asked in a courtroom, then he is doing what the Bible calls bearing false witness. He's bearing false testimony. He's saying, this is my testimony. This is what I saw, what I heard, what I did, what I didn't do. But it's not the truth. And therefore, in the purest sense of the word, he's not really giving his testimony, is he? Because if his testimony is supposed to be his witness, and if his witness must be true, then to say something other than what's true is to not give his testimony. He's giving something else. We call that aggravated perjury. The first time the Hebrew word for testimony is used in the Bible, and I always like to look at that. When you study your Bibles and you come across a word, and if you'll look it up in the concordance, in other words, to see what the original Hebrew word was, then it'll show you the first time that word was used in the Bible. And that's always a great place to start. It's a good place to be instructed by how God introduced that word into the Bible. And so I did that with the Hebrew word used and translated as testimony. And I found the first use of it in Exodus chapter 16, verse 34. Exodus chapter 16, verse 34. And in that chapter, God had fed the children of Israel with manna. We studied that passage and remember that it was as coriander seed and all of that, all those things that went with it. And there were lessons that we learned about God providing exactly what his people needed. And Moses, in that passage, told Aaron to take an omer, a certain amount of that manna, and to lay it up before the Lord. And here's what it says in verse 34. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. The word testimony there was actually capitalized in the Bible, and that testimony was the Ark of the Covenant. It was often called the Ark of the Testimony in the Old Testament. But that Ark of the Covenant or the Testimony was God's witness to his people. It contained the mind of God, and we know it was altogether true. So the covenant, the law that was on the tables of stones that was placed in the Ark of the Covenant, that had the law of God on it, and that was the mind of God. And if his people kept that law, then they were keeping the witness of God. And when God said, if you obey my statutes and commandments, none of these diseases will come upon you. Your, your enemies will flee and 
I'll protect you and all of that, then that was always, always true. Not one time did God give a false witness. Not one time did he change his mind about the law. He didn't say one day, thou shalt not steal, and the next day, well, it's okay if it's just a poverty crime. That's what the district attorney in Dallas County says when he refuses to prosecute thefts between $100 and $750, is that they're poverty crimes if they're stealing formula and diapers and all of that. Well, guess what that did? That invited a whole new class of criminals is what it did because they began stealing formula and selling it on the black market, and it, it, just, uh, it just spiraled out of control. But God didn't say that that's okay. In Psalm chapter 19 and verse 7, Psalm 19 verse 7, the Bible says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And there's a beautiful song that's sung with those and some of the other words in there. Maybe that will be a project for us in the future for the trio, perhaps, or maybe the choir. But in that psalm, David declared that God's testimony was sure. And that means it was verified. It was trustworthy. And therefore, it was true. Josiah, the text tells us, was given the testimony. And... It doesn't mean he was given the Ark of the Covenant. That would have been an instant death. We know what happened to Uzziah or to Uzzah who touched the Ark and tried to steady it on the cart that day. He died, didn't he? He wasn't supposed to touch the Ark of the Covenant. He was not uh, a Levite. He was not uh, allowed to be near that Ark in that way. It doesn't mean that Josiah was handed the tables of stone from within the ark. It simply means he was given the book of the law. I believe that's what it means. Let me give you some scripture on that that might help you arrive at that same decision, hopefully. Joshua 24:26. Joshua 24:26. Now in time, we're going way back from where we are in 2 Kings. Hundreds of years before. It says, And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took a great stone and set it up there under an oak that was, the that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Now we know that Joshua did not write the Ten Commandments on the tables of stone. He did not author that document or that writing. They were in the Ark of the Covenant. And so this book of the law that Joshua wrote back then was a copy of God's law. It was a recording. It was a true copy of God's law. And anyone who held that book in their hands was holding the testimony of the Lord. Anyone who read that book was reading the testimony or the witness of God's word. When I hold up my Bible, I'm holding in my hand the testimony or the witness of God's Word. Not the chapter divisions or the commentaries or all the things that are put in there to help you, the page numbers and so forth. 
but the actual words, the translations of the words from the original languages. I'm holding the witness of God's word. Now, in this text, if you'll look down in verse 12, where it says, and gave him, the words gave him may be italicized. They are in the King James translation that I have. And as you may know, that means that the the translators supplied those words. They were not in the original Hebrew text. And the reason they're supplied is so in translating from Hebrew to English, you can understand what the sense of the word in the sentence is. Now, in doing that, when they put gave him, then it suggests to us that something was handed to Josiah. However, some commentators believe that this testimony was simply the apparel, the royal garment that Josiah wore. And I think their reason for that is that the English words gave him are not in the Hebrew text. So if you look back at it, it without the words gave him, the last verb in that uh, that is before the testimony is the verb put. So if you read the text without the italicized words, it would show up this way. And he brought forth the king's son and put the crown upon him and the testimony. So I think that's where some of the commentators understand that to be a royal robe. The only problem is it doesn't say that in the text. And the testimony being a robe, I guess that could be to, uh, to identify him as a king. But I tend to think that it's more accurate that he was given the testimony in the form of the book of the law. That's what's important. It's not the clothes that he wears. It's the book of the law. It's the witness of God's word that that little king needs most in his life as a person and in his life as a ruler. That's what's going to get him through the tough times. And that's what's going to help him rule Israel. Not what he's wearing, but the witness of God's word in his hand and in, in his heart. In either case, whether it was the apparel or whether it was the words written in the book of the law, Josiah, just like every other king, was obligated. He was bound by the testimony of God's word in ruling those people. Now look down in verse 12 in the middle, and it says, And they made him king. And they made him king. Even in the case of a relatively good king, which we'll see that Josiah is, when man makes a king, there is always going to be a problem. This phrase reminds us of the truth about man-made kings all over the world, then and now. They are sinners elected by sinners. It's that way every time. No matter whom we put in the White House, had all of us been alive when Abraham Lincoln was put in the White House, was elected, we would have been sinners electing a sinner to the White House. Even though history will record him as a good president, in, at least in the mind of many. 
Now, what we also know is that God has authority over all of his creation, and that includes the throne, the White House, the Blue House in Korea of every ruler. He is sovereign. Even wicked rulers are under God's authority, although they reject him or deny his existence altogether. And it's by God's mercy that even a wicked ruler sits on a throne for one second because God can replace him at his pleasure. He can strike him down or he can prolong his reign for his sovereign purpose. Romans chapter 13 and verse 1, Romans 13 verse 1 says, and you're going to hear the word powers, this is authority, these are those in charge. Let every soul, every person be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God, the powers that be are ordained of God. So that very clearly tells us, it doesn't say the good powers or the benevolent powers, it says the powers are ordained of God. God has ordained in his plan that there be rulers and that rulers rule over men. There's going to be good ones, there are going to be bad ones. And when you submit yourselves to the authority of a ruler, even a wicked one, you are to remember that those rulers are under God's authority. So it's not an either-or thing. As much as I, I'll give you an example, as much as I disagree with our current president, I am subject to his authority when he signs a bill that becomes a law or an executive order, even when it has a negative effect on my bank account, which it certainly has and will continue to do for some time. And if I refuse to pay those exorbitant taxes, I say, I'm not doing it anymore. Well, what I've done is I have failed to subject myself to his authority, to the authority of the Congress to make a law and of him to sign it and for it to be passed. And in doing that, I've failed to subject myself to God's authority. Now, people don't like to hear that. They say, well, if the taxes are too high, we shouldn't pay them. Well, we shouldn't have to pay them, but we do have to pay them. Uh, that's just the way it is. And if we don't, then if we think God is pleased with us for tax evasion, we are wrong. Jesus told the disciples to render unto Caesar the things that were Caesar's. Now, do you think he approved of Caesar? No way. You think he approved of the way Caesar ran his country or his empire? Not a chance. But even so, the people were subject to the higher power. They were subject to Caesar, and they had to render unto him the things that were his, but unto God the things that were God's. Caesar doesn't get God's things. And God doesn't need Caesar's things. They're his anyway, aren't they? That's the big picture, is all of that belongs to God in the first place. So this does not mean that God is pleased with many of the things our presidents or other leaders do. What it does mean is that because those leaders are under his authority, and we are under their authority, Submitting ourselves to their authority is submitting ourselves to God's authority. Now, 
Here's what it does not mean, and this is just as important. What it does not mean is that if our leaders tell us to do something that is a sin, that we should do it so that we can subject ourselves to that authority. That's where they have taken themselves out from under the authority of God, but we're still under the authority of God. And submitting ourselves to their authority at that point means to not submit ourselves to the authority of God. So if, and well, we'll get there in just a moment. We're talking about the significance of the part of the verse that says, they made him king. They made him king. Have you ever considered how long-suffering God has been toward man when man has continually made man his own king? He did it in the Garden of Eden and was thrown out. Who was the ruler of the Garden of Eden? It was God, and he had unbroken fellowship with his creation. And at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where Adam and Eve ate of that fruit, they threw off that government. They said, God's not our ruler, man is. Satan is. And so they were thrown out. And God set his love upon the children of Israel who were a sinful, pitiful bunch. They were in bondage and slavery for over 400 years. And he delivered them from bondage. And he led them through the wilderness and placed them into a promised land. And he established his law and a priesthood to represent God to the people and the people back to God as we've studied many, many times over. So let me ask you this. If having a king was the best way to rule the people, or having a president was the best way to rule the people, even a representative republic, if that was the best way to rule the people, then why didn't God set that form of government up instead of a priesthood? After all, the other nations had kings in those days. And they were powerful nations, Egypt and Assyria. Why not Israel? By divine inspiration, Moses made an interesting statement to the children of Israel in his final message to them in the book of Deuteronomy. But before he made that statement, he told them, and I'm in chapter 17, verse 9, Deuteronomy 17, verse 9. Moses told the children of Israel, And thou shalt come unto the priests, the Levites, and unto the judge that shall be in those days, and inquire. And they shall show thee the sentence of judgment. So in this verse, Moses told the people, Go to the priests, go to the judge who is judging in those days. Now, moving down to verse 14 in that same passage, Moses said, When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me. They didn't have a king back then. I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me. 
And then he tells them, when you do that, here's what kind of king you better select. And these people must have been thinking, well, first of all, we are, uh, we're not in the promised land like this. Moses is still with us. It's over there. Why would we need a king? But their hearts would soon turn and they would want a king. They wouldn't say, you know, Lord, your form of government in the Garden of Eden was the best and we rejected it. We want you as our ruler again. We want you as our king again. They didn't say, Lord, you have delivered us and you put a priesthood over us. And they have all the answers to our problems and all of the sentences of the law and the judgments are in their hands and they have your word. So we're going to keep going to them or to the judge whom you've put over us. They said, God said through Moses, you guys, one of these days, you're going to throw all that off. You're going to want a king and you're going to want a king like all the nations around you, which aggravates the problem here like all the nations that are about them. You know, this verse in Deuteronomy tells us a lot about God's foreknowledge. You think he didn't know what his people were going to do? He knew every detail. He knew that once he brought the children of Israel into the land he gave them, a land he had prepared for them, that they would soon want to do like the heathen nations around them and make themselves a king instead of realizing they were a peculiar people. They were a called out people on whom God set his love, not because they were mighty in number, but because God was gracious and compassionate to them. And they would not, God knew they would not seek a priest or even the judge for judgment and righteousness. And this is exactly what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8, you remember from our study in those two books, 1 and 2 Samuel. Samuel was God's prophet and he judged Israel in those days. That's what the Bible tells us. He judged Israel. So who did the people go to in those days? They went to the judge, to Samuel, for the judgment. They went to the priests. And in Deuteronomy, God had told his people, come to the priests and the judge to be shown the sentence of judgment. Yet he also knew they'd want a king one day. And listen to 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 5. It's 1 Samuel 8, verses 4 through 5. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah, and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Is that not exactly what God said would happen when they came into the land he gave them? All the way back in Deuteronomy, he said this is exactly how it's going to happen. And there it is right there. They wanted a king. Like the nations. Like the nations. Everyone else has a king. Why shouldn't we? That's what people might say today. And they got a king. And his name was Saul. 
And a bunch of trouble came with it. And God said it would. Samuel told of the horrible things that would happen under Saul's reign. And what complicated matters here in those days where Samuel was getting old is that his sons, who should have walked in his ways, Samuel was a good judge. He was a righteous judge. His sons, who should have walked in his ways, weren't fit to be righteous judges. And even the common people knew that. The elders knew that. And the Levites were so crooked and corrupt, so the people could not depend on them for righteous judgment. Now, what would the right thing have been for the children of Israel to do? To seek the Lord with all their hearts, to repent, bow their faces before him and say, Lord, we are in trouble. We have on the heels of Samuel, when he dies, we have a bunch of wicked sons. And we have many Levites and priests who are corrupt, who don't teach us according to the law. And God would have raised up another one. He raised up Samuel. He would have raised up another one. But they didn't. They said, well, since this is the case, Samuel's about to die. His sons are no good. The Levites and priests, by implication, are no good. Let's see what the nations around us are doing. Let's, hey, they have a king. Let's have a king. They made a king over themselves, and God said, okay. You know, we can apply this to the church today as well, because the children of Israel, that was us. That was a people who was called out, delivered from bondage, led by their God through a wilderness, just like we are today, delivered into a promised land. And how most churches today want to be like the nations around them, or we could say the other churches around them. When Rick Warren started the Saddleback Church in 1979 out in California, he did so by surveying the people in the community. And one of the questions he asked them, in fact, the purpose of his mission was to find out, why don't you attend church? What's the reason? And he surveyed many people to find out why they didn't attend church. And you know what their answers were? Boredom? Distance from everyday life? Lack of welcome for visitors? Insistence on money? Inadequate programs for children? And by the way, I know what that means to most people. No water slides, no this playground and that swing set. I know what that means. The program children need the same one we need. It's this right here. Talk to them in a way that they understand. That's what they need. And within a few years, the worship services at Saddleback Church saw over 20,000 people per week coming in. And do you know what pastors all over the country wanted to know? What is your secret, Pastor Warren? How did you do this? And I'll give you just a little taste of what his mindset was. And this had to do with how he selected the type of music for their church. He said, he passed out index cards to everyone in the church and had them write down the call letters of the radio station they listened to. 
And he said 96 to 97% listen to middle-of-the-road contemporary pop music. And based upon that survey, he said he made the strategic decision to unapologetically become a contemporary music church. And he further bragged, we are loud, loud on Sundays, and we're not going to turn it down. Now, analyze what you just heard about the reasons people said they didn't go to church. Boredom, what is that? If God's Word is boring, then there is a very good chance the person listening to it doesn't know God. They're not saved. They say, eh, that's not too exciting to me. Man, this is our necessary meat. I starve to death without God's Word, and so would you. Boredom. Distance from everyday life. Meaning the church and the world are too different for them. When they come to church, it's one way, and when they go out in the world, things are another way. Listen, that is a wonderful testimony for a church, is that what we teach and practice, and hopefully our members do and abstain from, sets them, sets us apart from the world. If you look the same as the world, do the same as the world, and what have you, then what is the difference? And that was a criticism these people had. And here's how that, what that led to. Just one thing. In December 2011, Pastor Warren canceled all worship services so the church could participate in a huge volunteer neighborhood event. Well, he wasn't the only church that did that. I know of a very prominent, nationally known Baptist church in eastern United States Canceled a Sunday worship service so they could send people out into the community and do nice things. Like the nations around them. And this is the downfall of a nation, a church, also a family. Did you know that church since then has ordained three women pastors in one year? They used to be a member of the Southern Baptist Convention. I don't know if they are or not anymore. Like the nations around them, and oh Israel, what have you done here in America? What have we done to be like the nations around us? And even though Josiah was made king, they made him king. And it was a continuation of Israel's desire to make a king unto themselves, rather than accept and thrive under the government God instituted for them. And then it says in the text, in verse 12, and anointed him. They anointed him, or Jehoiada anointed him. That is, he put oil upon him. You may remember Samuel anointing Saul as king by pouring oil upon his head. And boy, Saul needed not actual oil, but he needed the anointing of the Lord because that's what that oil represents. It's a type of the Holy Spirit. And yet, because stiff-necked Israel desired a king, God allowed them to have one. He said, okay, go ahead. You know, he does that with us many times. We stiffen our neck and harden our hearts, and he says, all right, 
Well, go ahead. There's a certain, I've warned you what happens there, and it's going to happen, but go ahead if that's the path you want to walk. And sadly enough, we do. He warned them of all the terrible things that were going to happen, but they insisted, and in his mercy, God still had his hand of protection over Israel, even in their disobedience. He still protected them. And it says they clapped their hands, and that's a sign of approval. The people approved of the king. Most people will clap their hands for a worldly king, but they won't do so for the king of kings. That just amazes me. Because had they clapped their hands for the king of kings, they would have never wanted a worldly king. They would have been satisfied with God's government. And they said, God save the king. The word save is usually translated as the word live. So it has other translations say long live the king. And maybe you've heard that before as well. So the word save here is not principally spiritual But that really is the greater need the king has, not just to live a long time, but to be saved spiritually. And so the thrust of this phrase is that the people are wishing that the king would live a long time because it's a stressful thing for a king to die, especially a good king. With that, we'll close for today and pick up with verse 13. Next time, let's pray. Father, as always, you are so gracious to teach us through your word. Thank you for the attention of the people. Thank you for the understanding you give us. And now, Lord, we pray that you would continue to have our attention undivided as we go into this next hour and sing our praises to you, encourage one another in the faith, and learn some more from your word in the book of Hosea. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.